0: Hello, and welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to Insurance Solvency with your host, Dan Cotter, attorney and counselor at Howard and Howard Attorneys PLLC. We're excited to welcome today's guests, Joe Dememo and Fred Morrow. As a former Deputy Insurance Commissioner for the Pennsylvania Insurance Department's Office of Corporate and Financial Regulation, Joe directed the department's solvency monitoring operations for Pennsylvania's domestic insurance companies. He was responsible for overseeing the financial analysis, examinations, and corporate licensing of the approximate 250 insurance companies authorized to operate in Pennsylvania. He held this position from January of 2016 to August of 2020. Prior to this, Joe held the position of Deputy Insurance Commissioner for the Office of Liquidations, Rehabilitations, and Special Funds for 11 years, and also served as the Director of Liquidations and Rehabilitations for 15 years. He was a Commonwealth of Pennsylvania employee for over 40 years. As the founder and president of Westmont Associates, Fred Morrow, Esquire, has over 40 years of broad-based industry experience. This includes executive legal positions with life and health and property and casualty insurance companies, as well as a strong background in legal and regulatory work. Rounding out this experience have been responsibilities as a commercial underwriter and an excess and surplus lines brokerage. Mr. Morrow is also the president and founder of Frederick Morrow & Associates, PC, and continues to serve as the claims monitor for the Arrowwood Insurance Company's runoff on behalf of the Delaware Insurance Department.
1: Welcome to today's installment of the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast series on insurance topics relevant to you. Today's topic is insurance company solvency, and unlike most companies, insurers are not able to become debtors under the United States Bankruptcy Code. Instead, they are subject to a proceeding under the supervision of the state where the insurance company is domiciled. While many of the concepts are similar to bankruptcy, each state has its own insurance code to address how an insolvency or rehabilitation will proceed. On today's podcast, I'm privileged to be joined by Joe DeMemo and Fred Morrow, who are experts in the field of insolvency and the solvency concepts that we're going to talk about today. And so welcome to this podcast. And with that, uh, thank you, Joe and Fred, for being on. And if each of you can talk a little bit about your careers and, and uh, how you got to be uh, addressing issues of insolvency, that'd be great.
2: I think you let Joe start. Okay. Um, again,
3: my name is Joe DeMemo. Uh, I've been in the insurance business probably for the last 31 years. Um, went to, uh, after college, I got recruited by the um, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I went to work in the auditing. I was a had a bachelor of science degree in uh, accounting from Penn State. And from that, I became a CPA and went to work uh, as an auditor for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And uh, I I did that for about 10 years before being recruited into the insurance business by the insurance department of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And for the last 30 years, that's what I've been working for, uh, that entity. I started out doing liquidations and rehabilitations. At early age, I took over insurance companies and basically picked up the pieces that uh, were remaining at the time. I also was involved in some of the rehabilitations in Pennsylvania over the last 30 years. But for the last five years, I really spent my uh, job on a day-to-day basis overseeing the company regulation function of the department. Which is the, you know, the licensing of insurance companies, the analysis of financial statements of insurance companies, and also the examination of those insurance companies. And uh, and just recently, in August of this year, I retired after uh, uh, forty years with the Commonwealth. Congrats! Fred?
2: Thank you. So I, I took a little bit of a different tack uh, from Joe. When I got out of college, I went to work in the industry right away, and I was an underwriter for uh, St. Paul Insurance Company, commercial underwriter. And from there, I decided to go to law school. And while I was in law school, I worked as an excess and surplus lines broker uh, for a smaller um, surplus lines broker around the area where I lived. Uh, When I graduated law school, I was lucky enough to get a job as an assistant general counsel for a big insurance holding company, who eventually had uh, a management buyout, and I wound up as a very young general counsel for a new startup organization. Um, While I was general counsel, I was in charge of most regulatory duties that fall within an insurance department. And a number of years after arriving at the insurance department, I was uh, at the insurance company. Um, I guess they liked me so much they canned me, and I started my own firm 30 years ago uh, doing what I would call rent-to-general counsel's office or, in fact, a compliance office. And during those early years, that's where I became a receiver. Uh, and I was a receiver mostly in the state of Delaware which is different we could probably get into that i guess as part of the podcast um in in um Pennsylvania um many times the lead receiver would be a would be the um an employee of the insurance department where in Delaware where I was active we were kind of independent consultants named receivers. So it was an interesting twist on doing the same job.
1: Thank you, and that's great. And uh, for those listening to the podcast, that's the reason that uh, I mentioned, we're fortunate to have Fred and Joe uh, to talk to us today. We've, we've introduced some concepts and we're gonna get into much more detail uh, throughout the podcast, but let's, let's turn, before we talk about insolvency and kind of the opposite side of the coin, let, let's talk about solvency and what it is for a few minutes and and uh, if, if you could describe to us risk-based capital as a tool and other ways that regulators ensure solvency of the regulated uh, insurance companies and what solvency even means
2: well I'll defer to Joe again he's the uh, he's the CPA and he can do a much better job than I would ever do getting into that
3: yeah you know whenever I talk about solvency i talk about it in the most basic terms. When uh, we uh, used our tools to oversee the domicile insurance companies in Pennsylvania, the key to us understanding uh, the companies that we had was just to ensure that they were in a financial position to pay their liabilities as they came due. And I would say that with a special emphasis on policyholder obligations. They had to have sufficient assets to cover the liabilities from a balance sheet perspective, and they had to have the liquidity to pay those liabilities as they came due. And that was the whole focus of the department in regards to company regulation, ensuring that there were sufficient assets to cover the liabilities as they came do. And there's various tools to do that. Um, Dan mentioned uh, uh, risk-based capital. Risk-based capital is something, is a tool that was developed probably back in the 90s uh, to establish a capital amount that is unique to a specific insurance company. On an annual basis, each company has to prepare a risk-based capital calculation to submit to the department along with their statutory financial statements. That calculation takes into account the risks associated with its asset portfolio and also the lines of business and other liabilities it has on the liability side of the balance sheet. That calculation is unique to that company and it's used as a basis to determine what is the required amount of capital that company has to have uh, from a solvency standpoint. And it compares that number to the actual amount of capital it has. So you're comparing the required capital based on the calculation to the actual capital to ensure that the company has multiple uh, times the needed capital in order to operate as a going concern. It's a key, it's a key concept again that was developed in the 90s. Prior to that, there was a flat amount for property and casualty insurance company in terms of what was re- required capital, without taking into account any kind of risk, you know, issues associated with the balance sheet. So it, it was developed and it's been used ever since, and I think it's been used successfully. It's, it's, it's a go-to tool as terms of an initial review of a company to ensure that it's uh, financially healthy and it's something you would want to uh, buy coverage in. But there are other tools, um, uh, as Dan alluded to, that we also use. Like I said, the three basic prongs for a department is the licensing of companies uh, coming into the state, to ensure that they have a business plan, that they're properly capitalized, that they have the uh, experience and expertise and professional uh, qualifications to run the type of company they're uh, requesting to operate. And we also have um, the ability along the way if they want to write additional business or have additional qualifications that unless the company is financially healthy, the regulator has a lot of control over uh, whether, in fact, you enable them or permit them to do those new things that they want to do. We also do examinations. Um, uh, once every five years, each company uh, that's almost out in Pennsylvania, and it's similar with other states across the country that they they must do we the department must do a financial and a risk based ca- uh, review of their financial statements. And the intent is to understand the key risks of the company and make sure that they're in a financial position and strong enough to continue as a going concern. Uh, That's done once every five years. It's another way to get information about the company to ensure that it is solvent. And the final thing I would say is probably the most important thing from a pure ongoing administrative responsibility by the department, and that is the financial statements. Every company is required to submit an annual financial statement, a statutory financial statement. Statutory accounting is different than generally accepted accounting principles in that it's more conservative. It, it builds in uh, a bigger cushion to make sure that if something goes wrong, there's sufficient surplus uh, to cover any uh, you know, unforeseen um, catastrophes that may occur. So you have that. Uh, We have analysts that are required to review that financial statement and uh, identify any kind of outliers in regards to ratios, things like that. Um, The companies are also required to submit quarterly reports, which are, again, analyzed. We try to identify any kinds of trends, if there's a trend that uh, you know, is going in a negative way. We see a trend that uh, continues to see a reduction in the surplus of a company. Uh, that is an indicator from our perspective that we need to go out and have a discussion with the company, try to understand what's going on, what their issues are, how they are addressing that specific uh, issue going forward. And to the extent that there's a continued decline in surplus, there's always the opportunity and the means for the department to take uh, administrative action, and ultimately, you know, if uh, things don't improve, there's the ability to um, uh, to proceed down the receivership road with either a liquidation or rehabilitation. So, with that, I, that's my brief summary. Fred, you can add whatever you want to add to that. Yeah,
2: um, I think that that's a great summary. Uh... Taking it a view from uh, the company side or <clears throat> industry side, um, there's a few things to point out uh, that those of us on the call know. First of all, in the wild west of days, probably when Joe and I started before the '90s, um, states were not necessarily uh, coordinated in what they would want. For their domiciled insurer or their licensed insurers to have, versus another state. So what I was saying is, a sophisticated domicile such as Pennsylvania <clears throat> would have probably more stringent requirements than, let's say, uh, a state uh, that had lesser, um, a lesser, uh, lesser sophisticated department, and. Through the NEIC, which is the collection of insurance commissioners uh, getting together to codify lots of these regulations, we get less surprises. I would say, right, Joe? Um, yes. Sometimes I think it's a pain in the neck from the industry point, but I think it's it's provided, you know, a a a baseline which helps solvency. Yeah,
3: I'm- I think all that's true. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I agree with what Fred said. And I think that, you know, with the initiation of the risk-based capital, I think it put everybody in the same box in regards to what they it's not the only focus, but it is a big focus in regards to where a company stands and having other states feel comfortable with the domicile uh, insurance department that they understand uh, you know, the position of a particular company and they're, they're taking action where they need to take action. And, and they bundle all of that, the ability to uh, make sure that not only are, you, you know, like a Pennsylvania company, the Pennsylvania policyholders are protected, but we're doing that that the insurance department of Pennsylvania is not only protecting Pennsylvania policyholders, but all policyholders by their actions and their analysis and their examinations and that they're doing that on behalf of all policyholders across the country. And, it, and it's affect them and they did it through the accreditation process and the NAIC to make sure that everybody had the same model wax that they would follow.
1: Excellent, that was an excellent introduction to solvency. And now we wanna to turn to insolvency and in an introduction. And we've talked a little bit, there's been a talk of receivers, and rehabilitation and liquidation. How, how is the process in the insurance industry uh, overseen versus other industries for bankruptcy? And what are some similarities or differences?
2: Uh, let me take this just to start, Joe, and, and you can really get into that. But I, I think it's something that you said in your introduction that we have to focus on in that in in the United States, Insurance is really the purview of the states and not the federal government. So each state is the caretaker of the troubled company that that, uh, is domiciled there, where um, the U.S. bankruptcy courts uh, are supposedly um, taking the same law and, and exhibiting it evenly throughout the 50 states. In in insurance, you have to look to the state and how a state will uh, conduct its business, and it's gotten closer, uh, more um, more uh, regulated in the same way, but it is not necessarily that way, and different states have different approaches to it. And as Joe and uh, you had and Dan had alluded to, you know, you start taking a look at some of these tests things start going not in the best way and there are certain steps you can go to. It could be a supervision because of, and then a special exam. And then, you know, you you may get to a rehabilitation where your company is still in business, but uh, it's uh, it has certain rules that the state has. And then it gets to a point where you don't think it's going to make it, it's put into liquidation. And I, I think Joe is probably best suited to say, how you jump from each of those buckets to the, to the final bucket.
3: Yeah, I can speak to that. As, as Fred mentioned uh, you know, the uniqueness of insurance is that it's state-based across the board. And um, in order to start a company, you got to get to the uh, insurance department uh, to fill out an application, uh, you know, form a um, review and, 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 provide information about your business plan, who's going to be the board of directors, all those good things. So the initial stop is to the department to uh, set up a company. If you get approved, then you have to file with the department annual statements and financial information, actuarial reports, independent CPA reports. There's a lot of forms that have to be submitted. uh, And there's some that's based on the size of the company uh, that are required, too. So the analysis is done, and to the extent that a company gets in trouble, the only um, uh, mechanism to straighten the company out is for additional oversight by the insurance department to ensure that there are steps being taken to um, to address the issues that have cropped up, that have caused um, the company uh, to exhibit some forms of financial hazardous condition. And like I mentioned before, there are administrative orders that you can require the company to provide, you know, certain information on a periodic basis, restrict uh, the sales in regards to what they can sell, uh, the amount of business that they do going forward. And it's all with the intent to get it back to a financially healthy position. But like any other uh, entity out there that operates in the same way with bankruptcies, not everybody's going to make it. Um, Not everybody's going to be able to continue as a going concern. And when a company gets in trouble, the first indication is that you know there's a decline in surplus. There's some business that they wrote that is uh, you know creating huge losses, Um, and there's you know they they're They're just having troubles trying to um, navigate their way away from the losses and to develop some kind of profit mechanism going forward. The department works with the company. It gives it time, it gives it support. It uh, is trying to be helpful to the company because the department wants to see the company survive. The goal is not to put the companies into liquidation or rehabilitation. The goal is to have them continue as a going concern so that they can pay their obligations as they come due. So as, as as we're working with the companies to get them back on a financial path that's going to lead to uh, profitability, um, some make it and some don't. And the ones that don't, they understand they're going to have a certain time frame to try to fix their problems. And if they can't do that, and we have to look at the next step in the in the continuum of uh, trying to fix the company and generally that is a liquidation or a rehabilitation. Now, in Pennsylvania and I'm and I think in most states across the country, the criteria for liquidation and rehabilitation are the same. The question that uh, uh, is put before the department, which the department has discretion in regards to which form of receivership they want to they want to pursue. Is that is there an is there an actual um, option out there where a company, if it corrected the bad things that were going on with it, that they could actually get back on its feet sometime in the future? And that is usually the discussion that is held between. The department and the company, because you know, with Enver, whenever you go into a receivership position, it's a it's a legal process. It has to go before the court. There has to be a petition to put the company into receivership, and the form of receivership is generally um, decided by the commissioner. But you're looking to get consent from the company in order to prevent a fight in the court in regards to how it's going to proceed. So generally, there, there are steps along the way. The department works with the company to try to help right its ship. If it can't do that, then there's a discussion in regards to whether it's a liquidation or rehabilitation. And there's tried to build some consensus so that you have uh, the company consenting to the type of receivership that you're pursuing within the court system.
2: And that's a very important point. And, and uh, Joe is that consent. Uh, most receiverships uh, are with the company's consent, but not always. No. And it's uh, it's a big difference <laughs> because yeah. what happens? You're trying to you're trying to protect assets, and there's a lot of uh, assets that are used in that uh, that discussion that legal wrangling that goes on if there isn't a consent uh getting it into that receivership or liquidation mode I, right joe you've done lots of them you know yeah
3: yeah i've been on both
2: sides of that
3: and um and it it it's always easier to have built up a a plan to move forward from a financial hazardous condition to get a company straight back uh, to profitability and to have certain indicators along the way whether you're making progress. And there's generally an understanding as the company proceeds down that path, whether it is meeting those objectives or not. And hopefully, when you get to the point where there is a point of no return, that. The, the company and the um, regulator are both on the same page in regards to how this thing has to proceed. And when you do that, not only is it you know it consensual and you're going to court um, asking the court that both sides agree this is the way we want to proceed, but as Fred said, uh, if the company is going to fight the department, they're going to spend a lot of assets to do that. They're going to get experts. They're going to have attorneys are going to have all kind of fees, and all of that's doing is wearing down the asset base of the company um, when it's in financial hazardous condition to begin with. So the best plan is laid forth where both sides are on the same page, and there's a path going forward. Whether it's going to be a receivership or the company gets back on its feet is 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 the way to go. And, uh, and 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 most of and I you know my experience in the last thirty years is that. You know, it's probably in the high 90s that that occurs, but there are exceptions. Yeah. And when there are exceptions, it's a knockdown drag drag-em-out.
2: And and, and that those exceptions can be brought into two different categories, too. Sometimes, as Joe says, you know, you, you're looking for a plan. You see there's a problem. You're looking for a plan. Everybody, the, the company <clears throat> and, and the department is trying to figure out how do we best. From point A to point B to point C, whatever those are, your problem becomes on one end, right, Joe, when you have malfeasance, where all of a sudden you discover something's rotten in Denmark. And it could be a lot of times that the assets aren't what they say, the company says they are, and therefore there isn't proper protection for the policyholders. Uh, or it's when, you know, there is just, you know, uh, people, um, um, you know, are either bad actors or bad businessmen. And, you know, the model it, it's discovered is not what it was presented to be. And those are the instances where you have to jump in and do something without planning. And even then, it's kind of by the seat of your pants, right, to get you going, which is expensive mm-hmm. also. It is.
3: A receivership, you know, and there's been studies done of this. Uh, receiverships aren't um, aren't cheap. You know, the reality of it is um, because you know, the interesting thing about the receivership as opposed to the bankruptcy is that when a when the company goes into receivership, an insurance company goes into the rece- receivership, the insurance commissioner is in charge of the company. She gets to decide. How that thing proceeds whether it's a liquidation or rehabilitation even though there's oversight by the court the commissioner is making decisions in regards to how this thing is going to proceed going forward now the commissioner has the ability under just about all statutes throughout the country to hire a special deputy to perform that function for her or for him uh, some do some don't we've done it both ways in pennsylvania but it, it's that You know, she's basically in charge of the process and she gets to decide how she's going to try to address in a rehab how they're going to fix the issues that uh, created the problem to begin with or in liquidation, how she's going to liquidate the company, how she's going to collect the assets, how she's going to address the liabilities of the policyholders going forward. But it's unique in that way and that, um, you know part of the department's part from start to finish yeah and you can use the analogy from birth to death uh they're always part of that process which is very unique uh from my perspective in regards to uh an industry that's a major industry um you know you're 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 talking trillion dollars in premiums uh across the board and that um you know the opportunities sometimes for insurance departments is that, you know, there there's going to be uh, a receivership that you're gonna be able at least to, to if, if not run, but to oversee and to understand and, and try to um, uh, make sure that everybody's protected in the process.
1: That's a very good point. And in Illinois, for example, we have a special, special office of special deputy receiver <coughs> That uh, the department works with uh, for these matters. Uh, can we maybe, maybe for a few minutes, uh, both of you can give some insights into how do how do insurance companies get into these solvency issues in the first place?
2: Well, there's there's a there's a couple of different ways of doing it. Sometimes the business just goes bad, um, but sometimes um, you also have. Problems where the business plan doesn't make sense. So I've had an example where a company decided it was going to give all its profits to charity, and they bought a farm, and they were selling vegetables to um, to people who were, uh, you know, had economic hard times. Well, you can imagine one bad crop, uh, you know the you know, farmers who know what they're doing have a difficult enough time running a farm. But if you're running a farm that's producing money, supposedly, for an insurance company, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and so you get into their assets are not what they're supposed to be. Um, you know, um, interest rates go. There's and as Joe and I have seen a number of times. um Management thinks they're smarter than they are, right, Joe? I mean, it's as simple as yeah.
3: that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had um, my my experience. I, I try to give you a couple examples. Um, we had a uh, Pennsylvania company that was a medical malpractice writer in the nineties and into the early two thousands. It was initially a Pennsylvania only company that just sold. Insurance, medical malpractice insurance to physicians. It was very good. It, it had was making a lot of money, and then it got into well, we want to do hospitals too. We think we can do hospitals. We got into doing hospitals, and then it wasn't only Pennsylvania. It was other states. So they continued to grow, uh, you know, exponentially in a three or four year period. They really didn't understand the medical malpractice business in other states except for Pennsylvania, but they thought they could do it. And like Fred said, they thought that they were smarter than they were. When the final, you know, as the numbers started coming in and they saw the the loss ratios that they were experiencing, they got into a position that, you know, that they, they became insolvent. They, they Once they understood what they were dealing with on a national basis, they just got too big too quickly they got outside of their area of expertise they got into things that they thought they could do but didn't understand completely and they became insolvent. had to be taken over a medical malpractice writer the other one i i would use and and this one is still out there today and it's one that uh, i think is going to be around probably for the next five to ten years as a big issue in the insurance industry, and that's long-term care insurance. Uh, Long-term care insurance, uh, I think, goes back to the 70s. A lot of it was written in the 80s and 90s. Um, And it was written as very cheap insurance initially because the, the focus was on younger people to sell to. Uh, that would pay premiums, a lower premium for, you know, 20, 30 years until they needed the actual uh, coverage uh, going forward. And they used uh, very minimal assumptions in terms of estimating the pricing on those um, for that type of coverage. So uh, the, the writers continue to write this coverage probably in the, you know, 80s and 90s. Didn't figure out that the assumptions that they used for pricing were bad assumptions, and probably till the 2000s. Once they figured it out, they couldn't figure out how to address it going forward. Uh, the The way these policies, a lot of these policies were written, was that uh, you know you pay one premium, one flat uh, premium uh, from the, and that's how they attracted the younger people into the uh, coverage they say, if you start now, this is your premium. If you start when you're 65, it's going to be much higher and you're not, you may or may not be able to afford it. But what happened, the assumptions were wrong. They saw the losses. We, we've had uh, numerous, um, in, in Pennsylvania, we've had uh, several companies uh, go into liquidation. One's currently in rehab. And it, it's become a problem on a national basis. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners are out there right now trying to address this issue. And the issue is that how do you try to cover a hole between the assets and liabilities on the backs of senior citizens who've been buying insurance for the last 20, 30 years in some cases, and now their premiums are going to increase you know, three or four times over? And uh, it's a it, it's a problem. It's a real problem that's impacting a lot of long-term care companies out there. But it was a pricing issue to begin with. It was a pricing issue that nobody ever anticipated that people would live longer, that they would go to assisted living facilities, that they would have other mechanisms that would help them uh, continue to uh, be alive, you know, way past what... Uh, was anticipated you know 20 years ago so it's an issue and and it's one of those examples and and even the uh, even the uh, mortgage insurance uh, industry is a, is a similar type of thing and i'm you know mortgage insurance you know it, it's a monoline company generally they sell Mortgage insurance, and back in 2008, 2009, when there was downturn in the economy, you know, you could say that there was a catastrophe. That uh, there were a lot of people defaulted on their mortgages. Uh, I think there were in the 20s the number of mortgages companies, mortgage insurance companies that existed back then. Today there's seven. Uh, They all consolidated. They had to consolidate uh, just to stay alive. A lot of them just went by the wayside. So. There, there's a lot of circumstances that uh, you know are the or uh, are, are the reasons how a company comes to an insolvent situation uh, Some of them are preventable, some of them may not be. I think that uh, the ones I've seen more often is that that insurance companies try to grow quickly without really fully understanding the markets that they're entering and trying to do the same basic thing they've done in the past with a much more sophisticated market that they have to do.
2: And one of the things that uh, you do find on the other end of it that are absent right now, you know, maybe five years ago different, but when you're talking about your investments, there used to be a time with, where they used to call it cash flow underwriting, where you were making so much money on your investments that it almost didn't matter. What type of risk you were taking because you were going to make so much money with the tax structure and the interest structure that you know, it was easier to have a successful or, uh, insurance business. Um, that you know is sliding backwards nowadays, obviously because interest rates are low. It's tough to uh, tough to make money on a portfolio of uh, equities. The other thing uh, that I would point out on the on the solvency side is also lack of adequate rate. and either you're trying to buy the business by setting your rates too low, or in the case of something like long-term care, it becomes a political problem and you can't get your rate and whether it's you know in states where it's just you can't do it, you can't raise the rates. Of seniors to where it should be and you you start in year one and by year 15 you can never catch up you know there are there are a number of reasons there but as Joe points out you know it comes from you know not knowing your business not being on top of it uh, maybe being naive in some instances or being bad actors I've had um, the largest insolvency I've dealt with the national heritage life um, which was taken over from day one by a Band of bad actors, and over the past twenty-five years, we've put about seventeen of them in jail, and collected you know two hundred and fifty three hundred millions from them. And there's all various schemes. And as probably Joe will agree with me, if these people use their intelligence to really run an insurance company, there would be no need to steal. Based on some of these things,
1: no, I agree. I think th- I th- I th- there's much of that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, the, the
3: only thing I was going to mention as uh, part of what Fred said is that uh, I I think he's right. I think there used to be an opportunity in the past to try to invest your way out of you know a trouble situation. You can't do that anymore. The investment yield on portfolios is just not that much. Uh, it's been that way since uh, you know probably two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and it, and it continues to go down. It it it's not looking positive at all. So you know the the folks are in the life industry that wrote annuities and there's a contract that is great that they have to pay and you know there there's always a concern that you don't make enough money on your yield of investments to cover that and there's going to be additional reserves that have to be put up as a result and so the the investment yield is a big deal and i i don't see that changing in the very near future no i
1: agree and as as warren buffett has said often and others in the industry, right? You can, as both Fred and Joe have talked about, you can underwrite your way to being number one in a line of business, uh, but but you have to really think about whether you have the expertise and pricing right to to get there. Yep. Uh, with that, I want to thank Fred and Joe for an excellent discussion. Uh, we've run out of time very quickly, it seems, and uh, I hope this has been helpful to those listening uh, in terms of insurance company solvency. And thank you for tuning in. To, the, to today's podcast.